Jesus once said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. Yet when we talk in the church about sharing our testimony with the world, we tend to talk about a lot of different ways, a lot of different approaches to doing that. In fact, there are entire programs and classes and curriculums and seminars and conferences about the best ways to share the truth of the gospel with other people. I know because I've been to them. Weeks of training courses and homework and practice sessions and curriculums and all of that is fine. But I find it fascinating that what we sometimes view in the church as being so complicated and requiring so much training and presentation and preparation and finesse, Jesus summarized in one simple sentence. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then later in Matthew 28, 19, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You know, that pretty much sums up Jesus' evangelism program. Love God, love each other, and share that love with other people. Now, of course, evangelism and discipleship are not synonymous. Those are actually two different things altogether. Evangelism is, is just one part of discipleship. Granted, it's a, it's a very important and necessary part of discipleship, but it is just the first step in true discipleship. So you cannot have discipleship without evangelism. But look, you can have evangelism without discipleship, which is why Jesus did not say, go therefore and make converts of all nations. No, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations because discipleship is the lifelong process of sanctification as we're being sanctified, we're being discipled, which Jesus talks about today in our story. And that is a much bigger subject than evangelism alone. So the product of sharing the love of Christ, the gospel, and our Christian testimony with others, which is evangelism, the product of that, by God's sovereign design and choosing, is a supernatural moment of divine revelation when someone is born again, according to Jesus in John chapter 3. It is that moment when a human soul is saved by grace through our faith, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.8. So effective evangelism, by God's sovereignty, of course, produces a profound moment of revelation and salvation that is sealed and secured by the salvific work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, which cannot be undone. Discipleship, on the other hand, is what happens for the rest of our lives after that moment of conversion. Discipleship is the journey that we are all on together and it involves a commitment to God and to each other that is ongoing for the rest of our lives. Just after Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he went on to say, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's the part that we have to keep working on together, by the way. That's the part that never ends, this side of heaven. That's the sanctifying work that Jesus prays for, for all of us, as we'll see. But when it comes to sharing the truth of the gospel with unbelievers, that is as simple and honest as us loving each other in the unity that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
by the Spirit of Christ that lives inside of us and sharing that love and that gospel with others. And by the way, if you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, then you are unified with the worldwide body of believers, whether you want to be or not. So I'm sorry if that comes as a surprise or a disappointment, but it's true. You may not realize it or recognize it or agree with it. You might not even act like it. But those who belong to Christ, as we'll see in our story today, are unified in the common bond of His Holy Spirit within us. And I've known Christians who refuse to act like that is true. They'd prefer not to be associated with other believers because uh, sometimes we act too religious or too conservative or too liberal or too naive or too exclusive or too hypocritical, too whatever, right? You can fill in your own blank here. But if you're a Christian, you cannot disassociate yourself with the rest of the body of Christ. You cannot hide from the fact that you are unified and belong to the worldwide family of Jesus followers. The fact is we are one. We are unified in Christ. And Jesus said, if you'll just act like it, everyone else who does not follow me will know without a shadow of a doubt that you belong to me. That is the greatest and most effective evangelism strategy of all time. And so although they're very different, evangelism and discipleship are, of course, inextricably linked. They're all tied up together and both necessary for us to become all that God created us to become, which is quite apparent in our text this morning as Jesus prays to the Father for all those who belong to him and even those who have yet to make that decision. So just as J.I. Packer said in the video, the reason this should be important to us is because it is important to Jesus. In fact, it was so important that his final thoughts and prayers for his followers just before being arrested and tried were focused on his desire for us to be unified as his people, his body, his church, because that is, that is our testimony. That's how the world will know that we are who we say we are. And so my question for all of us this morning is, how do we foster in our lives together as his church? How do we foster the unity that Jesus so desired and prayed for us to have? And there are some great answers to that question. There's a list of them we'll give you this morning in this prayer that he prays for us as we continue working our way through the gospel according to John and what is commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, or as I call it, Jesus' prayer for us. So let's turn there to John chapter 17. We'll pick up where we left off last week, starting at verse 1. And we'll read through verse 5. We're reading out of the ESV version, which we'll have on the screen as well if you don't have that. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So as Jesus prays here, it's important that we keep this entire farewell discourse, chapters 13 up to now, in view. Because this prayer 
is intimately connected with the message of those preceding chapters. And John makes that connection here in verse 1 with the transitional statement. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he's referring to the farewell discourse that we've just gone through in the last few weeks. And he says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and then, of course, the prayer begins. So John ties the prayer together with Jesus' final teachings. And in fact, uh, that was a common thing to do in both Jewish uh, and in Hellenistic literature in ancient times to connect a concluding prayer to a farewell discourse, which is exactly what Jesus was doing when he, when he prayed here. And the reason that is important for us to understand and consider as we read through this prayer together is because those chapters are littered with the constant theme of and ongoing references to unity among his people. So just quickly, a few highlights. Chapter 13, verse 35, which we just read earlier. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Chapter 14, verses 18 and 20, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He was speaking to all of his disciples. In chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, he said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In chapter 16, verse 33, he said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So after all of this teaching about unity among his followers, he concludes the teaching with his longest recorded prayer in any gospel, which uh, actually serves as a synopsis, a bit of a summary of the teaching and final emphasis on the need for us to be unified in him. And as we read through it here, you'll see that it, the prayer is divided into three distinct sections. When this first section, which we just read, Jesus prays for himself. While doing that, he makes a statement about himself that has great implications for all of us concerning this unity that we are to have. In verse 2, just after reasserting his deity as the Son of God, he says, you have given him authority over all flesh, with all flesh being a reference, of course, to the entire human race. So Jesus is the head. He's the king. He is our shepherd, which means we are his body. We are his subjects. We are his sheep. And so even though there are different gifts and callings and responsibilities given to each of us from him, we are still, every one of us, individual parts of the same body. We are all his subjects. We are all his sheep. And so for Jesus to say that he has authority over all flesh is a very unifying statement for all of us because it puts each of us on a level playing field generally, of course, as human beings, but more specifically as believers, okay? So we are unified by his authority. Regardless of our education or prominence or experience or position or influence in the Christian community, we are all still subjects of the same king. We are all under his authority. And so we should act like it. There are many individual local churches, but we're not in competition with one another, right? At least we shouldn't be. 
because we're all under the same authority. So what makes us think that we're better or worse than any other church or any other group of believers? We have no right or justification to believe that and no authority to claim that. And yet if we do make those kinds of claims, it only serves to sow disunity into the fabric of the church. So Jesus himself prays against that, as we'll see, which means that we should as well. Because if Jesus longed and prayed for us to be one unified family of believers, why not foster that unity by treating one another with dignity and respect as members of that same body, all under that same authority? And he gives us the ultimate example to follow in verse 5 when he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so just as there's mutual giving and receiving of honor within the membership of the Holy Trinity, we should mutually honor and respect one another as members of his Holy Church. And yet I'll tell you, the ease with which Christians seem to be able to tear one another apart on social media when we disagree, when another church is hurting or we don't share the same perspective on some issue, it is astounding to me. It never ceases to amaze me how quickly believers can be at each other's throats in matters big and small on a public forum. But that flies directly against the will of Christ for us. We should never, look, we should never equate freedoms with rights. We may have the freedom to fire off a scathing rebuke of another believer or another church on Facebook, but that doesn't mean we have the right to. In 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26, Paul said, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's how it's supposed to work. You people calling me and texting me all week, telling me about what's going on in your life. I was broken by the end of this week. I just felt broken. Why? Because you were suffering. And so we suffer together. So who are we to decide which members of the body it's okay to tear apart while we treat others with respect and love. And this often will manifest itself. I see it from my perspective often when there's a change in relationship status between two people or two groups of people. But listen, young people especially, listen, you were brothers and sisters in Christ before you were boyfriend or girlfriend. And to those of us a bit older, we were brothers and sisters in Christ before we were business partners or schoolmates or even spouses, whatever. We still are after that relationship changes or even ends, so we have no right to tear each other down or to drag each other through the mud. In John's first epistle, he writes, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. I mean, John's pretty clear on the matter. And yet I have friends who've gone through divorce where the spouse who 
claims to be a believer seems to do everything that they can to destroy the other person. That is deeply destructive and it's terribly wrong. And if, you, if you're going through that today, let me just say, first of all, very sincerely, I am very, very sorry. I have watched that process take its toll on more than one friend. Secondly, I would strongly encourage you to take the road less traveled. That doesn't mean you, you become a doormat and accept every false claim against you. But it does mean that you stand for righteousness and truth, even if the other person doesn't. You lean not on your own understanding in those dark hours, but trust the Lord with all your heart. And look, know that there are other believers who will stand with you and pray with you and walk with you through those most difficult days. God is a restorer of relationships, but sometimes people, unfortunately, don't always act according to his will. So listen, don't lose your faith or your resolve to live for Christ even when other believers act anything uh, like anything but Christ. Romans 14, 18, and 19, Paul says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is what Jesus is praying for when he prays for his followers. Perfect unity among us. And he establishes that first by pointing out that we are all, every one of us, existing as members of the same body, under the same authority. And, and it's not as if we grant him that authority, by the way, by our good graces when we feel like it, when we feel like agreeing with him. It doesn't work that way. In verse 4 of this prayer, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's praying this to the Father. He said that before the cross. Jesus says, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How can he say that before his atoning death and resurrection? It's because his sovereign plan has been established before time as we know it. And there is no power on heaven or earth or hell that can stand against that plan with any effect whatsoever. You see, any attempts to thwart the purposes of God are utterly futile. His authority is absolute and it is unifying for those who follow him. Let's keep reading uh, verses 6 through 19. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, this is a reference, of course, to Judas Iscariot. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. He's making reference, if you'll remember, to his earlier uh, teaching. 
Just as I'm not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus shifts his prayer here. He starts out praying for himself. In these 14 verses we just read, Jesus prays for his disciples. And to be clear, he's actually specifically praying for those 11 disciples of the original 12. So uh, although there are broader implications, of course, for us today in this second section of his prayer, he's specifically praying here for those original disciples that walked with him during his public ministry on earth. And he lays that out in verses 6 through 8, which we just read. And then in verse 9, he says something very interesting and probably somewhat counter to the prevailing attitude of our, uh, in our culture toward Jesus Christ. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. It's become a bit in vogue these days for Christians to almost celebrate our own brokenness and the dysfunction of the church and the fact that we're no better than anyone else because I think we desperately want to be accepted by the world. But Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. There was a significant difference to Jesus between believers and unbelievers. And I understand that we're all tired of being labeled as hypocrites and self-righteous and judgmental and on and on and on it goes, and I get it. But listen, there's a difference and it's a big difference between those who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ and those who are not. Okay, we are unified by his gospel, as we saw in the video. We are unified by the gospel. Unbelievers are not. We live by the gospel. Unbelievers do not. We have been redeemed by Christ from our sin. Unbelievers have not. We are guaranteed eternal life with him, Unbelievers are not. We have the power of the Spirit of God living inside of us. Unbelievers do not. There's a massive difference. In fact, a supernatural and eternal difference between believers in Jesus Christ and unbelievers because we are unified by the truth of the gospel and all that goes with that. Of course, that in no way gives us the right to be arrogant or to boast in any way, despite all of his great accomplishments, David wrote, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad, Psalm 34, 2. The Apostle Paul quoted this passage more than once, so we boast not in ourselves, we boast in Jesus and what he has done for us. We boast about the gospel story, not our story. That story is what unifies us. In verse 6, when Jesus is praying, he says, they have kept your word. He's not saying they've perfectly kept the Mosaic law or they have been obedient to every single command of Christ. No, we've seen them mess up already many times, right? What Jesus is saying is, even with all of their mistakes and blunders and shortcomings, they have accepted and embraced this gospel, the truth of the message, and they've believed that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, and so they are now unified in that truth. That's what makes us different from the rest of the world today, just as it did for them then. It's not because of anything that we've accomplished. 
It is solely and completely because of what he has accomplished in us. His gospel story working in our lives, okay? Our confidence is rooted in the efficacy of Jesus' prayer for us, not in our own abilities or righteous behavior as Christians. Our only boast is in Christ Jesus, which, by the way, includes our failures. Again, I know that it's become popular for Christians to highlight how screwed up we are because we think that will make us more acceptable or accessible to unbelievers. And although it is important, of course, to be honest about our imperfections, we shouldn't be spending our time and energy pointing people to our successes or to our failures. We should be pointing people to Jesus Christ. We do that by loving God, loving each other, and sharing that with the world. That's called living out the gospel, which is not only what unifies us, but it is also what will attract others to that message when they see it actually being lived out in front of them by true believers. And I'll tell you, that is decidedly counter to our culture, and it's precisely what many people are looking for today. And of course, Jesus knew that. And so that's what he was praying for us to be able to do. In verse 11, he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he prays for unity among the disciples through the message of the gospel. He also prays for their unity in the name of the Father. We're unified in his name. Okay? God, his name embodies his character and his nature. Back in verse 6, when Jesus prayed, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. That phrase, I have manifested in the ancient Greek, is the word phanero. It means to make visible or known that which has been hidden or unknown. It's also probably a reference by Jesus to Exodus 13, uh, 13 through 15, where the Father reveals his name to Moses and all that that meant. So Jesus is saying here that he has embodied the very nature and character of the Father to his disciples, and by that, he has manifested the Father's name to them. And it is under that name, the banner of the Lord, that we are unified as one body of believers. So look, it is not the name of a political party that unifies us, right? It's not the name of a cause that unifies us. It's not the name of a cultural ideology that unifies us. It's not the name of a local church that unifies us. It's not the name of a denomination that unifies us. It is the name of the Lord, the embodiment of his character and his nature expressed through Christ to us that unifies us. And as Jesus prayed, he was asking the Father to complete that work in his followers. He prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So again, Jesus was not praying for the world here. He was not even praying for the disciples' evangelistic efforts at this point. He was praying for their own discipleship through sanctification. And the way that believers are sanctified, according to Jesus, is by the truth, which he says is God's word. It aligns perfectly with Jesus' command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. How are we to teach 
one another to observe all that he commanded by teaching the word of God. Okay, what we're doing here today, right now, this is discipleship. This is us being sanctified, being made more like Jesus, the embodiment of God's character and nature by the teaching and receiving of his word. Okay, we're unified by his word. And as we're being sanctified by the truth of his word, which means we're being made more like him, which is to be set apart or holy. That's what sanctification means. As that happens by way of the truth of his word, we're unified. This is one of the reasons that we don't sit at home when the church is gathered and make ridiculous claims about how we love Jesus, but not the church. I'm sorry. And I know I've said it before, but you cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. You cannot. That position doesn't wash with Scripture. It is scripturally indefensible. It doesn't wash with the teachings of Jesus, who not only taught that we should come together and be one, even as he and the Father are one, but it was so important to him that he prayed passionately to that end. This concept that you can live your life with just you and Jesus because you don't need anyone else is a fallacy. Jesus prayed for us to become one, to be unified through the sanctifying work of his word as we share it and teach it and study it and digest it together. And as we are sanctified by the truth of his word, we're unified. We become one as we live in conformity with the shared truth of that word. And the disciples came to understand the gravity of this, of coming together and teaching the word, which is how the ministry of deacon came to exist. When, when food for the poor was being unfairly distributed in the early church, they had feeding programs. The 12 disciples gathered the rest of the church because it was all kind of going sideways. And they said, listen, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, Acts 6, 2, and 3. They weren't being arrogant. It sounds like it to us. They weren't being arrogant. They weren't uncaring about the needs of the people at all. They simply understood the weight of responsibility that had been placed upon them to teach the word of God. And those men weren't willing to compromise that. Okay, I've been in pastoral ministry, either part-time or full-time, for over 20 years now. And in that time, I have cleaned toilets and mowed lawns and shoveled snow and replaced light bulbs and mopped floors and pretty much anything else you can think of. And it's all good, by the way. Please understand where I'm coming from when I say this because I have never considered myself, never, have I considered myself above any of that? And I'm not now. But the truth is, you don't want your pastor cleaning toilets and mowing lawns and mopping floors and the rest. You don't. It sounds very noble, but it isn't. It is actually unfaithfulness for anyone to spend more time working on everything but the very thing that God has called them to. You want your pastor to have his head and his heart buried in the word of God in prayer for most of the week. 
because the primary gifting and calling of the pastor is to teach the word of God. But if he's throwing a sermon together uh, on Saturday night because his entire week has been spent putting out fires, the church and the ministry will suffer. And I'm telling you, one of the very first things to go will be the unity within the church because the word is not being taught as it should. I've watched it happen. We are unified by the word. By the way, because you're all looking at me funny. <laughs> that hasn't happened here. Please understand where I'm coming from. That is, I'm serious. That has not been a problem at this church. So I'm not trying to send some passive aggressive message from the from the pulpit. The truth of the matter is the bulk of my time each week is spent in my study in preparation for the teaching of the word, as it should be. Um, I do a lot of other things here, and I work very long hours, but the majority of those hours are spent in prayer and in study for this. It's the way it should be, and I'm simply saying we need to guard that. We need to guard that with vigilance, particularly as the church continues to grow because there is, there is an increasing pull to do other things as we grow, and yet there's nothing more important than the, than the discipleship that occurs through the teaching of the word when we're all together. Okay, now, as we continue to read, Jesus concludes this prayer with a beautiful and impassioned plea to the Father for there to be unity among us. I love the closing. Let's read it, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So we've seen Jesus pray for himself, and then he prays for his disciples who were with him during his earthly ministry, and here in this final section, Jesus prays for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning I'm not just praying for these original disciples, but he continues, I'm praying also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me and everyone who will ever come to faith in Christ in the future. And then he prays for this unity. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And he reveals another way that that happens. He says that they also may be in us, okay? We're unified through our relationship with God. Healthy relationships with each other are born out of healthy relationships with God. And so Jesus prayed that we would all be one, unified through our relationship with him. Otherwise, our relationships on earth will never be what they could be. We can fake it. Man, I've seen some people who are professional fakers. We can muddle our way through life doing our best to achieve harmony with other people. 
But those relationships will never be what they could be without first having a healthy relationship with him. R.C. Sproul said, the greatest benefit of Christianity is not the forgiveness of sins. That's simply a means to an end. The greatest benefit that we have is access to the presence of God and his son. That's where Jesus wants us to be. That's quite a statement. And we see that here in Jesus' own prayer for us. A desire, a longing for us to be in relationship with him and with the Father. In verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. So clearly he wants us to be with him, right? And then he prays to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now listen, the phrase to see, when Jesus says he wants us to be with him to see his glory, the phrase to see is the Greek word theoreo. It means to observe with a sustained attention. It also includes this idea of entering into an ongoing experience of something. So Jesus wasn't simply praying that he wanted to show off his glory, right? He wasn't praying to simply have a moment in his glory to inspire us and to encourage us. No, he was praying to the Father that we would be in an ongoing, sustaining relationship where we continually commune with him and live and bask in his glory, He longs, Jesus longs for you to be in relationship with him and with the Father. Think about that. How astounding and astoundingly wonderful is it to grasp the fact that the Savior and Redeemer and Lord of all creation longs to be in an ongoing and profoundly intimate relationship with us. (laughs) It doesn't get any better than that. And then more than once in this prayer, he says, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Which brings us back to the very beginning of this message where Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So at the very beginning of the farewell discourse, and he bookends it here with a very similar statement. It's all tied together. Our relationship with him unifies our relationships with one another, which is then our testimony to the world about our relationship with him. I'm telling you, it is impossible to overstate the importance of unity among us right here. And I don't think it's any accident that Jesus' longest recorded prayer in Scripture focuses on that very subject. And so in the beginning of this sermon, I asked a question. I said, how do we foster the unity that Jesus so desired and prayed for us to have? I mean, we've seen that we're unified under his authority, right? By his gospel, in his name, by his word, through our relationship with him. He spells that out here in the prayer. Then how do we foster that in our lives and in our church? And I'll just tell you very simply, you can boil the answer down to one word. Submission. We foster unity among us by submitting to his authority, by submitting to the message of the gospel, by submitting to the power of his name, 
by submitting to the truth of his word and by submitting to the relationship that he desires to have with us. And I'm not sure this is even an exhaustive list, but it's a good start. It's what Jesus prayed for us, that we would become perfectly one so that the world may know. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it is quite simple. We have a responsibility, a command to make disciples by sharing Jesus with those who have yet to know him. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how much we know or how hard we work or how much we rehearse. If there isn't genuine unity among us, then all of the effort in the world won't make one bit of difference. That's why Jesus took so much time to pray that we would become perfectly one so that the world may know. Let's pray.